Well, let's get on with it. Malachi. We are almost done with this difficult, short, yet amazing book of Scripture. The last book of the Old Testament. And then there's silence for 400 years before we get to the Gospels of the New Testament. And it is awesome to be able to work through it. So this week and then don't miss next week those final three verses we'll look at that conclude this oracle, these series of oracles, this prophetic word from the Lord God Almighty, the Lord of hosts. We are in Malachi 3 and 4 today. Looking at the question they ask, what have we spoken against you? D.L. Moody, you ever heard of him? A lot of you have. Was uh, the most famous evangelist in the world, really, in the late 1800s. And people, came, he had this Bible conferences that he did in Massachusetts. And people came from around the world to attend these. And one year, a large group of pastors from Europe came and uh, they, they all got to stay in the dormitory of the Bible school. And as was the custom back then for Europeans, the men put their shoes outside the door of their room. Now, we would not do that in Albuquerque, would we? They would be gone. But they would put their shoes outside. Why? It was the expectation back then that they would be cleaned and polished by the, the servants during the night. But there were no servants in that American dorm and as D.L. Moody was walking through the halls and praying for his guests that night he was praying over them and for them he noticed the shoes and realized what was going on and he mentioned the problem to a few students but none of them offered to help well without another word he gathered up the shoes all of them and took them back to his own room where he spent the night cleaning and polishing each pair why do I say that it's a great picture of service that I see. We're never too, listen, our britches are never too big to serve. Do you know that? Do you know that? Man, I see, I just watched a doc, documentary about a very well-known megachurch. We see it all the time in all different sizes. People can get too big for their britches. Listen, God help us if we have to have a chauffeur if we have to have a private elevator. Now, I don't even want a certain parking spot. You know, we, we serve together, amen? We don't look for position, and if we, God blesses us with position, we sure don't let it get in the way of serving in the kingdom, of the devotion that is worthy to our God, our God who saved us. And so let me just remind you of that. It's, it's just that important. And that's just a little story that... Reminded me when I read that, man, service. Well, toward the end of his life, Albert Einstein, you heard of him? A little different than D.L. Moody. But towards the end of his life, Albert Einstein removed, in his office he had portraits of two scientists. Maybe you've heard of them. Newton and Maxwell. And he removed those portraits from the wall, and he replaced the portraits with a portrait of, of, people, of Gandhi and Schweitzer and Einstein explained it this way he said it was time to replace the image of success with the image of service wow another picture another reminder John Piper says it this way God is not looking for people to work for him 
but people who will let him work mightily in and through them. Did you hear that? I want you to hear that, church. I want you to hear that today. Oh, I don't have a position. Oh, nobody notices me. Stop. God is looking for anyone and everyone who will open themselves up and let him work in and through them mightily. Listen, you may be thinking, I'm just in the scenes and I'm a prayer warrior. Stop. God will work mightily through you. Well, I'm working with the kids. God will work mightily through you. Well, I, I want to work with the teenagers. God help you. No, I mean, God will work mightily through you and adults and VBS and I don't know whatever it is, washing the dishes. It doesn't matter. God is looking for people who let him work mightily in and through them. Let's take a look at Malachi 3, starting in verse 13. Here it is. Your words against me are harsh, says the Lord. Yet you ask, what have we spoken against you? You have said it is useless to serve God. You might want to underline that. That's a bold statement, isn't it? It is useless to serve God. What have we gained by keeping his requirements and walking mournfully before the Lord of hosts? So now we consider the arrogant to be fortunate. Not only do those who commit wickedness prosper, they even test God and escape. And the prophecy is quick, as usual, in Malachi. At that time, those who feared the Lord spoke to one another. The Lord took notice and listened. So a book of remembrance was written before him for those who feared Yahweh and had high regard in his name. And look what he says. They will be mine, says the Lord of hosts, a special possession on the day I am preparing. I will have compassion on them as a man has compassion on his son who serves him. So you will again see the difference between the righteous and the wicked, between one who serves God and one who does not serve him. Chapter 4. For indeed a day is coming, look how it's described, burning like a furnace, when all the arrogant and everyone who commits wickedness will become stubble. The coming day will consume them, says the Lord of hosts, not leaving them root or branches, but you, for you who fear my name, revere my name, the sun of righteousness will rise with healing in its wings, and you will go out and playfully jump like calves from the stall. Doesn't that sound fun? Have you ever seen those videos? Go to YouTube. They're pretty funny. Verse 3. You will trample the wicked, for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day I am preparing, says the Lord of hosts. Let's pray. God, speak to us today. Show us your way. Remind us of our place and our place of service. Remind us of the opportunity we have to join with others fully devoted to you. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. So let me ask you the question this morning. Does it pay to serve? Is it a little dark in here? I'm sorry. Are we, we got the lights good for Bible reading? Can you read it? Okay. Maybe, maybe my, my eyes are going now. I don't know what it is. Sorry. That just popped into my head. As you know, those things come out. 
Let me try again. Take two. Does it pay to serve God? Here we see in this time and in this passage, some of them flat out question if it paid to serve God. And God was clear that when he would come to judge the world, he would distinguish between the righteous and the wicked, between those who feared and served God and those who refused to fear and serve him. So let's look today at the sixth and final dispute that God had with his people. As usual, it will apply to us today just as if we were there back then. So let's start in verse 13. And uh, we'll see uh, point number one. There's harsh talk and uh, once again another objection. Harsh talk and another objection. I want to note a couple truths first as we jump in. First note this truth with me. God never promised to make this life on earth easy with no problems. I know there's books out there. I know there's very wealthy preachers out there who would tell you different. But that is not what God's word says. He does not promise just if you become a Christian, everything will be easy in life and there will be no problems. How, how do we know this? We don't have to go to seminary for this, do we? It's called sin. We live in a world of sin. And we go all the way back to Genesis, and we see that, and everything has been in decay since then. And yet God graciously and miraculously saves us from that sin. But let us never forget that. Listen, your Christianity and my Christianity is the only faith system in the world that can answer the question of suffering Decay, whatever you want to call it. It's called sin. S-I-N. And so we need to remember that truth. Okay? Another truth I'd like for us to remember is that God has made a promise to spare those who reverentially serve him. We see it right here in this passage. Isn't that a great promise? No matter what you're going through, no matter where you are in life, God has made a promise to spare those who reverentially, that's what fear means, serve him. He's also made another promise. Did you catch it? For the arrogant, the prideful, for those who refuse to serve him. I'm not going to spare them. So let's look at verse 13. We see right off the bat at the beginning of it that some of them said harsh things. This is more of the same stuff from certain people. They're criticizing, if you will, how God ran the world. It is more of an idea of, where's the judgment, Lord? Well, we looked at that a few weeks ago. Remember back in chapter 2, verse 17? They're, they're just continuing on with that, right? Where's the, remember, the, the big question was, where's the God of justice? And so there they go. It doesn't just include, I don't think, where's the judgment, but also, hey, where's the reward? And let me just remind you, if you're serving God for a reward, stop. Stop. Do not serve God for the reward. Serve God because you love God, and he has saved you and changed your life, and he wants to work mightily in and through you. The word harsh is a harsh word. I've been waiting to say that. I just was looking forward to that. It means strong, it means difficult, it means to seize hold of, it even can mean obstinance, 
You see how harsh that word is? Yeah. It, interestingly, it's the same word used way back in 2 Samuel. If you remember, David was having troubles with Joab. And David flat out, they have plans, and he overrules Joab. That's what that word harsh is. These folks arrogantly criticized or they blamed God for what was going on. So they said harsh things. And the Lord, that's, that's the quote. That's what he says. But as we see in the rest of verse 13, some objected to the charge. Did you catch that? It's the same pattern. It's the same pattern. What have we spoken against you? You know what I've noticed looking at human, I, I, I study humans. Are you aware of that? Yeah, I study you. I like to see how, how people respond to different things. And I've learned something. Critics often do not accept responsibility for what they say. Have you ever noticed that? I'm not just talking about, about politics, you know, poly and tick bunch of bloodsuckers. I'm not, I'm not just talking about that. I'm talking about all kinds of leadership or even people. Today it's so much worse. Why? Because critics can hide behind what? The keyboard. Right? With the internet and all that kind of stuff. Critics often will not take responsibility for what they say. And it's the question here. They've said it. We've seen it. It's over and over again. And here we go. And they go, what, what have we spoken? What have we said against you? What are you talking about, God? This denial was immediate. They asked what the Lord meant and what they had said against him. They pleaded their innocence, if you will. I believe they've become blinded by what they're doing. They did not even realize, this, it's, this passage is amazing. They didn't realize the absurdity of what they were asking. Let's be benevolent. Perhaps some of them didn't remember what they said, but more likely they felt that their perspective was justified. That's another thing about critics. Don't be a critic of the Lord, by the way, is they like to justify their perspective. So what I would say to verse 13 is this. Beware criticizing God's ways. Let's learn from their mistake. And then, it's not enough just to not criticize. Let's let God be God. Let's get up each morning. It's a good thing to do. You can do it before you even roll out of bed and say, God, just help me remember today, I'm not God. You are. Align me up with you, the creator of the universe, the one who saved me. It's amazing how that will affect our day. Well, let's move on to verse 14 and 15. And we see here, at this point, there's no benefit in devotion to God. Now, that's not my point. That's what they're saying. There's no benefit in devotion to God or to serving God. And I just want to say it is arrogant to think that it does not pay to serve God. So we see in verse 14 that the people doubted the value of following God. They doubted the value of living for Him. They said it was useless. That word means emptiness. That word means nothingness. It means worthlessness of conduct. It even can mean lying or falsehood. Again, another strong word. It's useless. God, you must have lied to it. It must have been a pyramid scheme. You did something. You, you pulled the rug out from under us. That's, they're saying it's useless. They considered serving the Lord 
as a big lie because they felt that God and his word was a lie. That serving God was a big waste of time. Now notice they're questioning there. They questioned the value of obeying him. How did they do that? Saying there was nothing to gain or profit by obeying his requirements. They also questioned the value of mourning and repenting. Do you see that in those verses? It talks about mourning. What does that mean? They're, they're saying there's no reason to humble ourselves before the Lord. What foolishness to question all these things. And it's obvious. We don't need to go into great detail. We see this just by reading those words. But let me give you the proper perspective. It's found in Philippians 3.8. Paul combats this. Philippians 3.8 says this. The Apostle Paul saying this. More than that, I also consider everything to be a loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. Because of him I have suffered the loss of all things and consider them filth so that I may gain Christ. That is the value. The value is in Jesus. And so verse 14 they're doubting following him and living for him. In verse 15 they go a step further. Look at verse 15. So now we consider the arrogant to be fortunate not only do those who commit wickedness prosper, they even test God in his case. They don't know when to stop. They take it a step further. And here in verse 15, it's as if the people are now endorsing flat-out evil. Amazingly, they actively undermine the biblical teaching of the fact that they should have known that God will punish the wicked. Do you remember it wasn't very far back that they dealt with that question? The God of justice. And what do they do here? They endorse the behavior of the arrogant, saying... The arrogant or proud were blessed. They endorsed the prosperity of the wicked, saying the wicked were more prosperous than they were, implying they would rather be like them. Is that not 2023 today? If you don't get anything out of the sermon, can you get that out of the sermon? There are people who prosper today who are evil. Or maybe they don't seem to be evil, but they have nothing to do with God. And yes, they're more prosperous than I am, but I need God to, to kill that feeling inside of me that I want to be like them or I want what they have. No, it's the wrong perspective. So they endorse that, and they endorse the wicked's denial of God and their cursing of God, saying that those who cursed or challenged, the word is test here, the Lord, that they could get away with it. It's amazing what they were thinking. So I got to thinking. When they're thinking, sometimes I get to thinking, what, what? how can that be? How can that even be today? How does one get to the point of believing that God's law is useless? That this is not worth it? Well, I have two points today. I don't want to see if you fall into either category. Just two. We could go on and on, but today we have time for two. They both start with L. You ready? Write the first one down. License. What does license mean? License is the idea that since we've been saved by grace through Christ, we are free in the Spirit to do as we please and indulge whatever we want, even if it opens the door for sin. And we need to speak against license because there's some Christians that think it's okay. These individuals see the promise of God's forgiveness as justification to do whatever they want. Therefore, the law seems useless, obvious. Have you ever met anyone like that? It's true. 
Here we go, Romans 6, 1 and 2. What should we say then? Should we continue in sin so that grace may multiply? Absolutely not, exclamation point. How can we who died to sin still live in it? The Bible refutes license clearly. Matthew 5, 17, you'll remember from the best sermon ever, the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus, early on, right after the Beatitudes, says, don't assume that I came to destroy the law or the prophets. I did not come to destroy, but to, remember, fulfill. So that's license. Well, how else can it seem like this stuff is useless? The second one is legalism. Here's a pithy little definition for legalism. Some of us have actually lived through some churches that were really legalistic. We have the scars to show it, but here it is. Legalism. Putting fences around the law to protect yourself from breaking it. And of course, the great biblical example we have is Jesus going around and around with those Pharisees. Remember them? Just all these things added in, legalistic stuff to try to keep them from breaking the law, and they totally missed out on it. Listen to what Jesus says in Matthew 23, verses 23 and 24. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You pay a tenth of mint, dill, and cumin, yet you have... You know, by the way, every time I read that, I think, our church ought to tithe cumin. I love cumin. <laughs> you slip a little in the salsa. Are, you, are anybody with me on that stuff? Enchilada, chicken, tortilla soup. Some of y'all hate it, don't you? Okay. You, you pay a tenth of mint and dill and cumin. Here it is. Yet you have neglected the more important matters of the law. Justice, mercy, and faith. These things should have been done without neglecting the others. And look, he goes on. He's not done with them. Blind guides, exclamation point. You strain out a gnat yet you gulp down a camel. Isn't that amazing? Those are two things we have to watch out for. If you lean towards license, get that out of your life. It's going to lead you down a path where it, this is all useless to follow God and be devoted to God. If you lean toward legalism, please get that out of your life. It's going to lead you down a path that's artificial to devotion of God. You're going to artificially think this means I'm devoted in serving God when it's not what he means at all. Jose Cubero, age 21, was the most brilliant matador in all of Spain in 1985. By the way, I'm not advocating bullfighting. Don't send me a note, okay? Best guy, 21, prime, 1985, but he made a tragic mistake. He thrust his sword a final time into the bleeding, delirious bull, which then collapsed. Game over. Considering the struggle finished, Jose turned to the crowd to acknowledge their applause. Maybe you've seen how they do that. It's very festive and acknowledging the applause. The bull, however, was not dead. It rose and lunged at the unsuspecting matador receiving the applause and its horn pierced his back and punctured his heart. It's illustrated for this purpose. Just when we as Christians think we have finished off pride, pride will come right back around and stab us in the back. 
It's called arrogance here in these verses. You see that? We should never consider, Christian, never consider that our pride is dead. Our pride will not be dead before we're dead. Be on guard against pride in your life. It can sneak up on you before you realize it. Let us not be arrogant. Let us not think that there is no benefit in devotion or service to God. Let's move on to 16 through 18. And we see the righteous respond. How do the righteous respond? They respond with reverential fear. There's still a remnant. There's always a remnant. Have you noticed that? There's always some folks, no matter what, even in the Holocaust, there's always people who will continue to follow God no matter what. And there's a remnant. I hope you see it. It, we see it starting in verse 16. There's some folks who still served and revered the Lord. This wasn't applicable to them. And what do they do? They meet together and they lift each other up. Did you catch that? Look at verse 16, the beginning of that. At that time, those who feared the Lord spoke to one another. Listen, it is good to speak to one another. Let our conversations as fellow brothers and sisters in Christ be conversations that lift each other up. Let us be full of stories of devotion and service to God, of sharing the gospel with others. Let us build each other up and encourage each other up. And this is what is happening here. And what does the scripture says? The scripture says that God, you see it? Noticed. Interesting word. It literally means to prick up the ears. Now we've got uh, uh, our grandkids and, and son and daughter-in-law with us for a few days as the final touches on their house are being done and uh, I'm blessed with Mando the Husky the world's largest Husky in the backyard and what I've noticed is uh, I didn't mean to use the word notice that's what we're talking about is his ears will prick up he I, if I could have the hearing that he has right guys so that, that's what this word means it's it it's metaphorical here, but God, it's, it's God noticed. The ears are pricked. It also means to lean into. Not just, hey, I'm hearing something, but like Manda would do, lean into it. What is that? And I hope you're a friend and not a foe. It's a wild animal, right? Okay. Sorry, guys, I didn't know we'd work Mando into the sermon. But just to give you an idea that God noticed, he hears, and he's leaning into it. Can we just stop for a minute and bathe in this? The God of the universe notices righteous people getting together and being devoted to God and serving Him, even talking about it. Now, that's a whole nother sermon we don't have time for. But just, would you be encouraged by that today? And God goes further here. He says in this prophecy that these folks, something special about them. He says, these folks will be mine. And that they would be a valued possession or treasure. You have some phrase like that in your translation right there. Do you see that? And I was reminded immediately of 1 Peter 2.9. Again, be encouraged by this. If you're serving the Lord, if you're a Christian, if God has saved you, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his 
possession so that you might proclaim the praises of the one who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Wow. Valued possession. That's what it means. One of my favorite stories of all time is Roy Regals. Does anybody know that story? Some of you will. He played for UCLA in the 1929 Rose Bowl. And Roy did something amazing in the first half. He recovered a fumble and he took off running. In fact, he ran for 65 yards towards the wrong end zone and had to be tackled by one of his teammates coming off the sideline to tackle him and got him just before he scored a touchdown for the other team. This is the Rose Bowl. That was the granddaddy of them all back then, okay? It was a big deal. There's actually video on this. It's pretty cool. But it was demoralizing. They lost points over it. And they went in at halftime, and it came time for the second half of the game. And this is why I love this story. His coach said in the locker room to those players, men, the same team that played the first half will start the second half. Do you see that? Did you catch that? But Regals didn't budge. He said to his coach, I can't do it. I've ruined myself. I can't face the crowd out there. And his coach said to him, Roy, get up. The game is only half over. And he did, and he got up, and he played well in the second half. Listen, all of us have run a long way in the wrong direction at one time or another. Maybe you're doing it right now, running from God. Maybe you have. Maybe it's not 65 yards. Maybe it's just a step this way or a step that way instead of following God. Listen, because of God's mercy, grace, and forgiveness, the game is not over. It's only half over. Well, for some of us, it's half over. For some of us, we're in the fourth quarter. I understand that. But I don't care if, you're, if it's a two-minute warning. The game is not over. We are his valued treasure, his possession. He says we are mine, we're his. Well, let's move on to chapter 4, judgment and promises. We finally get to it. It's called the day of the Lord in chapter 4, verses 1 through 3. Now, let me just give you a disclaimer. My intention today is not to place this consuming, burning day into an eschatological calendar or system. There's classes for that. There's time for that. That is not my purpose today. doesn't mean I'm running from it. It's just here's my purpose today. My purpose today is we think about this burning like a furnace day that will come someday is this. And we need to hear it in 2023 and we don't hear it enough. Here's my purpose today. Judgment and promises. Hell is a very real place. Sometimes the Lord may prompt us. We're talking about heaven to someone. Sometimes we might need to talk to them about hell. There's all kinds of crazy things out there. I can't pronounce it. Anon, anon, somebody help me out. So when you get annihilated, what's that ism? Say it loud. Yeah, that, what they said. You know, there's people that believe that there's, there's all kinds of crazy things about there is no hell or what hell will be like. And so I want you to know hell is a very real place. Hell is not just a cuss word. It is the destiny of those who die without Christ as their Savior. Hebrews 9.27 states it this way. And just as each person is destined to die once, and after that comes judgment. Listen, 
It's real. It's real. So let me give you one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, about eight things. There's not time to cover everything, but I'm going to give it to you fast. You write fast and write down the verse if you want to look at it. First of all, because I, I want to refute some things, hell is a place of consciousness. Okay, Luke 16, you'll remember that great story about Lazarus, not Jesus' buddy, but poor man Lazarus and Abraham, okay, in the afterlife, okay? People in hell, we just can look in Luke 16, people in hell are very aware of what is happening to them. It's a place of consciousness. Don't read that book or let someone else tell you that. That's what the Bible says. Number two, hell is a place of torment, what do I mean by that? It's a place of torment. It means there's no rest or no peace at all. Same story, Luke 16. You can also go to Revelation 14.11 and Revelation 20.10. There will be no parties in hell. It will not be fun at all. I have talked to people who said, I'll just go there and be with all my buddies. No. It's a place of torment. There's no rest or peace. Next, hell is a place of sorrow and eternal separation from loved ones. Luke 13, 28. Great sorrow and separation. Next, hell is a place of hopelessness. Hell is a place of hopelessness, and there is no way of escape. Matthew 25, 46. And again, you can go back to Luke, 10, Luke 16 to that story, verse 26. Hell is a place of tormenting Memories Again, Luke 16, we see that. Hell is a place of unfulfilled desires. Revelation 22, 11, and 12. And here, I think related directly to our passage we're here today looking at, is hell is a place of fire. Revelation 20, verses 14 and 15. Revelation 21, verse 8. Jesus speaking, Matthew 13, 50. So it's a place of tormenting memories, of unfulfilled desires. It's a place of fire. And don't miss this. It is a place of everlasting destruction. 2 Thessalonians 1.9. It's not temporary. So I think we need to see this as we look and see. For indeed the day is coming burning like a furnace when all the arrogant and everyone who commits wickedness will become stubble. The coming day will consume them, says the Lord of hosts. You see that? Hell is real, very real. So let's think about this. What does a person have to do to go to hell? I mean, obviously there's people in that, that day, right? There's people today. What does a person have to do to go to hell today? Do you know the answer? It's a trick question. Nothing. Someone got it. Nothing. Nothing. Listen to John 3.18. Uh, we, we love John 3.16. We love John 3.17. He didn't come to condemn, but to say, right? And we get to John 3.18. There is no judgment against anyone who believes in him. Praise God, right? But anyone who does not believe in him has already been judged. You hear that? Has already been judged for not believing in God's one and only son. And let me just stop and tell you that right now. 
If you are seeking, if you are searching, if you're thinking about God, what is this Christianity stuff? What does it mean to be saved from my sin? What does it mean to repent and turn from my way and my sin and run to you, God? What does all this mean? I just want to let you know and bless your heart today, whether you're watching online or sitting right here, you've already been judged. You're going to hell. That's what the Bible says. Unless you repent and believe and trust and run to the Lord and he miraculously saves you from your sin. Okay? It's not something you need to do. We got it from Grandpa Adam and Grandma Eve, and it's the same for all of us. You are condemned already because you're a sinner. But there is hope. Did you catch it in this chapter 4? A very unique and interesting title. Our only hope is the Son, S-U-N, the Son of Righteousness. Well, what in the world is the son of righteousness? It's a figurative representation, get this, of the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, the Messiah of mankind. The son of righteousness in the Old Testament is the same person who is the bright and morning star in the New Testament. It's Jesus, the Messiah. Praise God. And we see in these verses right here, we see judgment, wow, but for those who are righteous, that, that have that relationship with the Lord, He saved us. We're devoted to Him. We were received. Did you catch it? We're going to receive healing and joy. What do you mean healing? We're going to be spared. Healing, ultimate healing, right? Eternal life with God. We receive healing and receive joy, and I love the way it is described. Like the calves, the new calves way up north who have to be kept in the barn until it warms up enough in the spring and then they're let out. And it is a party waiting to happen. They are kicking legs and jumping around doing all kinds of stuff. That's, it'll be like that for you if you have that relationship with the Lord. Notice I am not talking about church membership. I'm not talking about baptism. Those are very important. I'm not talking about your family. I'm not talking about what you think you might believe or you think you might not believe, what you're for or against. I'm talking about what have you done with Jesus Christ, period. Period. For God so loved the world that he sent his one-of-kind son, Jesus, for us, for you and me. That's our only hope. We will receive healing and joy. The wicked will not. And we've described hell already. Well, as I close, I see some of the facets of the gospel here. Maybe you caught the, the gospel is woven throughout Scripture. Have you noticed that? And, and I see just the fact of sin is right here. And that's where we start with the gospel. It's the judgment of the wicked. We see it. The gospel starts with the fact that we're all sinners. And it separates us from God. And there's a, there's a the warning here of that final judgment of the wicked when it's too late. When it's too late. It's no second chance. It's too late. But also there's the promise of salvation, if you will, we see right here. Offered to those who revere and fear the Lord. There's the promise of the Messiah who brings healing and joy. There's the promise of the Messiah who comes to deliver and strengthen. And I want us to see that today. Know that. That's the gospel we have sin. It separates us from God. But God has a rescue plan for each of us. Not for your mama, not for your daddy, not for your children, not for your grandpa. 
not for your great, great, great uncle who was the best deacon ever in the world. No, it is for you, you and God alone. And God offers salvation to those who would believe, will receive the right to what? Become children of God. It's for by grace that we're saved through faith. God gives that to us. It's not something we've done that we might boast about it. It is a gift of God. God stands ready today all over the planet and right here in this room and right here in Albuquerque willing and able and ready to forgive and to save people who will repent, who will turn and run to Him and ask for that. And if you're thinking about that today, He's given you the faith already to do it. That's why you're thinking about it. So why not today? Why not today? That's the gospel. The cross bridges the chasm of our sin and holy God. Jesus is that bridge. Now, if you've already done that today, maybe years ago, rejoice in that. Rejoice in salvation. God saved us. He's saving us every day, right? We're at sanctification. But ultimately, when that day comes, it will not be hell for us, but it will be heaven. There's a lot of things about heaven, but what we know, what I know about heaven is it's eternally in the presence of God, however that works out. Can you claim that today in your life? Can you be encouraged, no matter what you're going through, that that is your eternity? Let's pray. Lord, remind us today that it is so worth it to be devoted to you and serve you, to be a Christian, to be an active, participation, active participant in your kingdom. Remind us of that. God, we've been reminded even here, though, of destruction and eternal torment, burning hell. God, help us to see with your eyes the people we pass by. That's their destiny without your miraculous saving of their life and forgiveness. Help us to get the word out, God. And I pray today for those who are not sure that you would penetrate their heart. God, that you would speak to them, say, this is a gift I want to give you. Turn to me. Lord, we ask for that. God, I pray that during this time of response, we'll think about those things. God, I also pray during this time of response, you would reveal to us people that we need to be concerned about, people that we need to be intentional with, people that we need to impact with your gospel. In the name of Jesus, we pray, amen.